Janet Reitman, who is the author of Inside Scientology. Janet, how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. I wanted to go ahead and start off with the idea. You write that Scientology was not a cult insofar as it did not require separation from mainstream society, nor from families, though it encouraged its acolytes to disconnect from those who were critical of Scientology. Now, sociologist Howard Beckert's idea of a cult generally emphasizes the private nature of personal beliefs or a group of people that isn't especially organized. Given how private and sequestered Scientologists are about their beliefs, I'm wondering if, it, if, it, if you took away the organization, could you call them a cult? How is Scientology not a cult? I don't like to use the word cult because I find that as soon as you use that word, it immediately stigmatizes a group and also marginalizes them and, and it delegitimizes them or takes them less seriously. The person, you know, the, the reader, the listener <clears throat> will immediately go, oh yeah, whatever, right? So one of the reasons I don't use that word is because I actually, in order for me to write a book about them, I have to take them very seriously and they are legitimized in our country as a religion. You know, now you can have a, we could have a five-hour argument of whether or not various other religions are cults. And, you know, we could have pros and cons on each side of that argument. But um, Why can't you be a cult and a religion? You, you probably could. I mean, you probably can be. You know, I'm not a cult expert. But yeah. what I say about Scientology in the book and what I believe is that at its, at its innermost core, it, has, it is a completely totalistic, all-encompassing... Um, organization that demands absolute 100% adherence to the rules and to the leadership of David Miscavige, the head of the church. And it was, it was also like that with L. Ron Hubbard when L. Ron yeah. Hubbard was the head of the church. But there's a, there, there are stratums of the way Scientology works. I'm not a cult expert, so I'm not really qualified to answer a lot of questions about cults. But, um, but one of the points about Scientology is that in the outermost kind of level of, of your dedication, which is where a lot of the celebrities are, actually. Yeah. Um, to them, to those people, it is not a cult. It's, a, it's either a religion or it's a, it's a, um, it's a process of self-help or a bunch, a bunch of sort of techniques that help them in their lives. And that, that's the way it begins for them. Now, I think that's the way it probably begins for lots of other believers of other totalistic groups, right? But you can be in Scientology for 20 or 30 years and remain on that outside periphery um, somehow. I've met people who have somehow remained in that, in that strata. Most people do not. Most people sort of enter further in. And the further in you go, the more controlling it is. Yeah. But, I mean, I think, that, I think the main point is, you know, it is, it is, it is whether it is a cult, quote-unquote, or not, it's, it's, in our country, it's legitimized as a religion. They're given yeah. tax-exempt status. They're recognized. They have more protections than some of the, than the Orthodox Jews in certain regards. You know, people Scientology parents can, uh, you know, write off their children's education. For example, um, there there was a very famous case recently of an Orthodox Jewish family that attempted to do the same. It went all the way up to the Supreme Court. They claimed the exact same protections as the Scientologists did, and theirs was knocked down. So, you know, internally you. <laughs> can't call them a cult, but externally, by virtue of their tax-exempt status, uh, you can or cannot call them a cult? Or I, don't, it, it, I don't think that it really makes a difference whether or not they're a cult. You know what they are? They're a global corporation. That's what they are. And they have all the dysfunction 
of any gigantic, global, powerful corporation. And that's how I look at them. I, I tend to look at them that way. They have religious components, absolutely. If you believe in them, that's great for you. I'm not going to judge their beliefs. Yeah. I don't judge their beliefs. What, I'm, what my book is about is about their practices, their organization, their, in, their impact or influence um, on the people that you know, have subscribed to their and bought in, literally bought in to Scientology because you, don't, you can't just do Scientology. You have to purchase Scientology. Yeah. You know, they're, they're a commercially driven spiritual enterprise. That's what they are. I'll get to Scientology in a minute, but just from a philosophical standpoint, because it is a business proposition, this does away with the cult's nomen. <laughs> I am not going to comment on whether or not they're a cult. I just, okay. I just, it's not interesting to me. Okay. No problem, no problem. Um, in your original Rolling Stone piece, yeah. you wrote that Scientology was rooted in elements of Buddhism, Hinduism, and a number of Western philosophies, including aspects of Christianity. Yet, you note in the book that L. Ron Hubbard wrote in this 1953 letter that he incorporated the religious angle as a matter of practical business. Uh, in the interests of staying objective, what specific qualities make Scientology a unique religion? I mean, how much of this hodgepodge you identify in the Rolling Stone article was designed as a matter of practical business? I don't think it w any of it was designed as a matter of practical business originally. I mean, I think, that I think the thing was is L. Ron Hubbard came up in, um, you know, he, he grew up in the, in the 20s, um, in the, he was born in 1911. Yeah. Um, he, he kind of essentially grew up, so to speak, in the 20s and into the 30s during the Depression. He was a young man in the Depression, and, and, and he found himself in Los Angeles after, um, after World War II. And Los Angeles during that period of the, late, the mid to late 30s and the 40s, um, and also actually the 20s, was this booming religious ground where all kinds of weird offshoot faiths, new faiths, and offshoots of Christianity as well were really, really popular. And one of those um, areas was... was um, the sort of Western esoteric tradition that he found himself um, getting to know very well through this association he had with Jack Parsons, who was a, a famous astrophysicist and um, a secret wizard yes. <laughs> and follower of Aleister Crowley. It's like one of my one of everybody's favorite stories is Albert yeah. Hubbard's association with Jack Parsons. But I think that he took those aspects of esoteric thought which were things like secret knowledge, things essentially, you know, ascending the ranks to gain more and more and more knowledge. And that was very common in LA. It wasn't just through Crowley, it was, you know, the Rosicrucians had a big church. There were lots of societies that were based on that kind of tradition, a sort of alternative new agey stuff that was really popular in the early 20th century and then became popular again towards the end of the 20th century. Um, and I, I think that Hubbard was was a guy that was really really interested in 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 philosophy and he was interested in power and he took you know he took the 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 probably the best parts as well as some of the non the dysfunctional parts um, in terms of Freudian thought his Freudian theories were things that had, Freud has had discarded years you know earlier but um, you know he took he took a, a wide variety of, of ideas he manufactured them in a way that made them palatable to people that were not well educated. It's very important to note is that people that did Scientology were very middle class. They weren't uneducated people. Yeah. Some of them were extremely well educated, but they were for the most part, you know, very average mainstream. And this was religion or this was self-help or psychiatry, you know, sort of an alternative to psychiatry for the masses. And at the time, these things were very exclusive. 
and you couldn't do psychiatry, for example. You couldn't go to a psychiatrist unless you had a tremendous amount of money to pay for a psychiatrist. There were only a few psychiatrists even in the United States, you know, practicing. Or you lived in New York. Well, you had to live in New York. <laughs> yeah. You had to live in Los Angeles. Yeah. Seriously. So, um, or maybe Chicago, you yeah. know, or in Washington, maybe three or four cities in this country. Um, and there were, you know, he, his philosophies, his Dianetics philosophy, it ta clearly tapped into something people were looking for. And, and Scientology, which was the offshoot of Dianetics, did as well. And it became, the reason that it had this religious component um, was that people began to experience these past life recall moments where they would be in these sort of trances that you go into when you're doing these um, auditing sessions. Yeah. And they would all of a sudden be thrown back to some previous life. And so they began to, this was spiritual to L. Ron Hubbard. It was spiritual to the people that were doing it. Um, whether or not they saw it as religious is very different than spiritual. It was spiritual to them. Yeah. He, could, he then thought, hey, I can package spirituality and make it religion, and I can get a tax deduction, or I can avoid having to, to deal with the U.S. government. He was extremely paranoid of the government. It was a big deal. And this was, you know, also remember, this is during the Cold War. Yeah. Um, and always on the move, which I didn't realize he was so always. on the move as as you depict in the book. Always on the move, always on the move. He was he went from um, living in New Jersey to living in uh, he lived for a while in California. He lived in Arizona. Then he moved to um, I think he moved from from basically he moved from New Jersey to Arizona. But he had you know sort of homes in Washington, D.C. He was all over the country. Then he moved to England, and he lived in England for quite a while. Then he moved to, he lived on, on the ocean for 10 years. Yeah. Um, and then he moved back to the United States, lived in Florida briefly, then lived in three different locations in the California desert, um, and ultimately died in a remote outpost uh, up in sort of north, northeastern, I guess, California. How does Hubbard's distrust for government translate into this need for power or this need to acquire the money of others in order to stay at the top of the chain, so to speak? I don't really know whether there is a big connection between the two. I, I think L. Ron Hubbard, what you need to understand about L. Ron Hubbard was he was a guy who was, um, who, who was a man of his time. And I'm not trying to be an apologist for L. Ron Hubbard. I'm just trying to put him into like the correct historical context because he's very often just written off as being a, like a crazy loon. And I don't believe that, actually. And I, I've interviewed so many people who have moved away from Scientology in such a major way and have really divorced themselves from all those ideas and who can still retain some respect for L. Ron Hubbard as a human being. So that's made me have to reconsider him. Mm -hmm. And what I, what I see as L. Ron Hubbard is, he was a guy who um, was a man of his time. You know, he viewed uh, success through the prism of financial success um, and, and how much money you had. It was a very materialistic period, the, the 50s, the 19, he was, you know, you have to remember, he was 40 years old in 1950 when he created this, or almost 40 years old, right? So this was something that he did as a middle-aged man. His entire, by the time you're 40 or 41 or 42 years old, you know, your ideas in the world, they're pretty well shaped, you know? And so he always was a product of this period, this mid-century, mid mid-20th century period. And that was the most materialistic time um, that we, in our history, in our 20th century history, really, besides maybe the, ninth, the 20s. And so his wanting to make money from people, 
I don't know if it was, I, I don't believe really that he was just trying to rip people off or in some way or another or, you know, extort money from them. It was, he truly believed that anything valuable you had to pay for and that the more, more and, and that because he had created something where you had to ascend ranks in order to gain more and more knowledge, the more exclusive the knowledge was, the more expensive it should be and the more you should pay. And that's, how, and that's the way, that was what he preached to people. And people of that era bought into it. Yeah. Um, I think it's a lot harder to sell today, but it was, at the time, you know, people bought into it. And also in the 50s and even in the 60s, it was not that expensive. It became yeah. much, much more expensive by the way, in the, in the late 70s and 80s, and then beyond that, it became in increasingly um, expensive. And it also became increasingly materialistic. It was not as materialistic earlier on. It was less, it was, it, it was much more of a philosophy and of a spiritual quest for people than it was um, a, a sort of method of self-help. And that's one of L. Ron Hubbard's, that was, that was really L. Ron Hubbard's genius, was that he knew how to package Scientology uh, to sort of fit the cultural zeitgeist of the time. So it evolved every 10 years, it became something else to, to the new generation of people. By the 80s and the 90s, it was now sort of business management, self-help, um, uh, and, and also, uh, you know, a cure for, for, for some of your, your deep psychological problems that psychiatrists or psychologists had not been able to help you figure out yet, um, an alternative to psychiatric drugs. And it has become increasingly expensive, increasingly out of reach for people, very materialistic, you know, increasingly demanding of people's time and of their money. But I don't think it really was to that, that way, really, in the 50s and the 60s and the, and the 70, early 70s. I want to ask, for the initial Rolling Stone piece, how you managed to obtain such access with officials inside the inner sanctum. I mean, did you have to strike any compromises of any sort to do this? I mean, it just seems a little odd in, in light of the fact that they are extremely protective about their image. They are not exactly media friendly. So what did you do? I, I was a reporter for a year before I did Scientology covering the Iraq war for Rolling Stone. And I came back from Iraq and I was, um, I was given the assignment to write about them. I yeah. was not, I, it was not originally my idea to, to pitch this to my editors. They kind of said it to me. And they proposed to me that I send a letter to the Church of Scientology saying I wanted to embed, as I had done with the U.S. military, right? <laughs> and of course, you know, me, I did. Wow. <laughs> it's like a good little, you know, following orders. I did. And of course they said no. Yeah. So I um, then decided, well, okay, I'll just try to venture off on my own and, um, and, and see if I can sort of catch up with them. I really knew nothing about them. I knew nothing about the organization. I knew nothing about how controlling they were. And so I went to New York and, and went to the organization here as, uh, without telling them I was a reporter, just to kind of check it out. Then I went to Florida, did tell them I was a reporter. They gave me this tour. And we began this conversation, and it was, I guess, in July of 2005, a really long time ago, about the things that I really wanted for my article. And they kept, pro you know, basically not answering my emails. Yeah. And at the same time that the, that the officials I was in touch with were not answering my emails, they were talking to my editors. They were, and, and as a matter of fact, um, a, a, apparently, Tom Cruise even made a personal phone call to uh, the publisher of our magazine. And his sister showed up at the office, I well, understand. Well, his sister showed up at the office, but I think Tom Cruise himself called the magazine and called Jan Winner and said you know, something bad about me that uh, he's never met me. I've never met Tom Cruise. I have no idea what he said about me, but it was, whatever he said didn't work. And um, there was a lot of attempts, though, to sort of diminish me, get the story killed, 
you know, uh, cast me as a liar in some bizarre way. None, none of these, I have no idea what their basis was for all any of these points, but none of it worked. And, um, you didn't receive mysterious phone calls? You weren't drowned in paper no, or anything like no, that? No, The At the time that we were doing this piece, the church, you know, Tom Cruise was appearing on Oprah. He was appearing on Matt Lauer's yeah. show. He was all over there doing the Today Show. He was doing the Brooke Shields thing. He was all over the place. This was the part of their big promo campaign. They couldn't very well just divorce themselves from publicity, having been, you know, encouraging him, certainly behind the scenes, to do that kind of publicity. And very, they were very happy with the publicity he was doing. So what they tried to do, not just with me, but with everybody else, was to control access by um, or control the message by deluging us with phone calls and making sure that they were on top of literally like every step of the way. And you know, for the most part, I think my editors blew off the phone calls. I mean, the guys, I know that, that Leanne DeVette, the sister of Tom Cruise, and Mike Rinder, who is now uh, a, a part of an independent Scientology movement, he's left the church officially, yeah. but um, at the time he was the chief, he was the spokesman, and he was the, like, the number two or three in the organization. Um, they came and, and had a, a meeting with my editors, to which I was not, by the way, invited. I had to sit in another office like a bad student. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing, principal. Like a principal. bad girl. Yeah. <laughs> I was the bad, I know, it was you were really, in detention? I was in detention until they were finished. <laughs> it was the most bizarre thing. So anyway, what happened was they kept in touch with us and, and, and whatever, and I made a very clear point of, of not letting them know who I spoke to. I mean, I just was trying to keep it on very much on the DL because I wanted to protect my sources and um, I guess it was around January of 2006 we're getting ready to run the article and I had to send them a list of questions that they still needed to answer for our fact checkers and at that point when they realized that oh my god the story is actually gonna run it's gonna be huge and we better respond they then said okay 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 we'll give you all the access you know but we want you know and, and then they named my two or three senior top editors. Yeah. They wanted my, you know, my immediate editor, who is a guy named James Kaminsky, they wanted him to come to California. They wanted Will Dana, who is the editor of the magazine now, to come to California to tour their facilities. And, you know, that's ridiculous. And tour the, the idea facilities. Was, yeah, you know, come to the Celebrity Center, come to, we'll show you around, we'll answer all your questions, but we'll, do, we'll answer them for you, the people that are the bosses. And they were like, you know, Janet's the reporter. <laughs> like, she's going to, you know, she's the writer. Wow. It was this funk, this bizarre, to me, it was this really interesting lack of understanding of how journalism works yeah. on a basic level. Yeah. Because they're very hierarchical and they don't think that, they look at me as a junior, I'm doing like the, I'm doing the grunt work when in fact, you know, I'm producing this. It's very strange. Anyway, they... You aren't answering to the higher authority. They, like not, well, I do answer. I mean, they... <laughs> I mean, hey, you do, but you have, you know, a, you have this... I love in, Rolling in, Stone. Intriguing independent I, mind. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I mean, the, you know, yeah. they pay, they pay yeah. me. I work for them, but I mean, they, they don't they don't write my stories I mean and um, so anyway I they sent they said no Janet's gonna go so I went and what they were trying to do is to give me a, a kind of a three-day PR trip but the demands that I had made the things I wanted to see took us all over the greater Los Angeles area because I just I didn't want to just see the Celebrity Center yeah. or the CCHR the, the uh, anti-psychiatry yeah. organization I wanted to go to one of their schools I wanted to go to the international base and they took me on a tour of the international base, which they have done on very rare occasions. Um, and 
they had me go to lunch there. They took me all around. They were trying, and they were basically trying to overwhelm me with a lot of information. But that enabled me to ask yeah. them anything I wanted to ask I them see. with my tape recorder and their tape recorders running. <laughs> they taped so, it too. So let me get this straight. By virtue of fact-checking, you were able to obtain this access. Mm -hmm, that's, mm -hmm. that's fascinating. That's the best way to do it, man. Yeah, wow. Um, it's a lesson for all you young reporters. Yes, exactly. Fact-check. I wonder if that was the situation with the Lawrence Wright New Yorker profile, too. It was. Yeah, to yeah. My, I'm, I'm, I don't know for sure, but I know that, um, that you know, there was a, there was a as he, he himself has talked about, there was a church response yes. to his article. Yes. And... Uh, and they and they were very eager to make a response. I'll put it that way. <laughs> and you know, this is what happens. This is what ha by the way, this is what happens when you interview public officials. This yeah. is what happens. You know, they have to at some point respond. Yes. And you hope that they will respond in the way that will help your article. Well, I mean, to be honest about that that piece that I did for Rolling Stone. You know, that was rare access that informed this book. And it was Mike Rinder, who was the the spokesman at the time was the most incredibly generous human being with his actual thoughts. I mean, he, you know, I knew that he was trying to spin me. He's a fantastic, he was a fantastic PR guy. I've got to say he was, he was, came across as, you know, completely honest while also, you know, definitely trying to mm -hmm. focus me in the way he wanted things to be focused. But, you know, they balanced my thinking and, um, and made me look at them as human beings. I mean, they, yeah. they, they let me stay with, hang out with them for three days. Yeah. And that was really important for me. That's what I had always wanted to do. And that's what you always should be able to do as a reporter. I mean, that's the goal of every journalist is to be able to spend an equal amount of time with both sides of a story so that you can really understand what the whole story is, not just one angle of the story, not just the crazy angle that everybody tells, but the other angle. So it was really helpful and it really, it was the reason that I even pursued this book was because I had gotten that access and I now yeah. had a much, I, had a, I was much more curious about what, what was the, really, what was the deal with Scientology because you know, I was actually kind of impressed by some of the Scientologists I met, um, and I wondered why they were in Scientology. So, sure. and that sort of took me on the, the journey I was on for the past. Well, month. let's delve into the actual organization itself. You point out that when it comes to lawsuits, the Church of Scientology tends to bury many of its critics and its opponents in paper. Um, during its fight with the IRS between the late 1980s and the early 1990s, the church filed, as you note, some 200 lawsuits against the IRS. Um, they filed hundreds of FOIA requests, spent $6 million on this newspaper advertisement with have, having such headings as, don't you kill my daddy, which you have these IRS agents. <laughs> you know, kind of storming. Real the, ones. They yes. have real pictures yes. of them, actually. Yes. Tactics that resulted in the church, of course, obtaining this tax-exempt status under this 1993 settlement agreement that, unlike the Jimmy Swaggart or the Jerry Falwell agreements, was kept secret. You state in the book that the excuse given was that the Scientology fight had been tying up IRS resources for too long. I'm wondering, aside from anonymous officials, are there any absolute quotes on why the IRS gave up its fight with the church? I mean, you have the sheer scope of Operation Snow White, which you bring up in the book, this effort to purge critical documents against the church, uh, and that you describe in the book as the largest program of domestic espionage in U.S. history. Why would the IRS give up its fight? Why wouldn't they combat this if you have things like Operation Snow White? You know, I think that, I mean, I interviewed a number of officials. Um, you know, who maintain their fear of Scientology, which is why they do not want to be named. So yeah. right there tells you something yeah. about the relationship of 
these people that worked for the IRS, most of these people by now are retired, um, and their long, long, long battle with the church and their fear of the church's tactics. Um, however, the, what the answer that, that most of them, you know, that they gave me, essentially, all of them gave me, was that uh, they were tired. It was costing a lot of money. It was taking up a tremendous amount of time and resources. It was, um, it was exhausting. And I think that David Miscavige and Marty Rathbun, who are the guys that, that, yep. um, that did their whole presentation, they spent a long time doing this. They were very persuasive. David Miscavige is a very persuasive guy from everything that I know and can tell. Um, he, he can come across as, uh, as fresh and new and young and sincere, um, um, not, you know, crazy or, I mean, he, he's not, he doesn't have that sort of artistic temperament that L. Ron Hubbard had where he would be like a lovely, wonderful, generous person one minute and a sort of screaming tyrant the next and would have these manic, you know, fluctuations and moods. Miscavige apparently does not demonstrate that to others. He may demonstrate that to his own staff, but he doesn't seem to demonstrate that publicly. And I think he probably made a good impression on them. Um, and, and they made this great pitch that they had changed. And by the looks of the organization, they had changed. They cleaned house, they got rid of most of the people that had been involved in these things. Now, to explain that a little bit, only the people that were involved in, in Snow White and some of these really, you know, that was a huge domestic espionage operation. Some of those people went to jail, and some of those people were recycled back right back into the organization. There are people that were working for the Office of Special, or for the Guardian's office at the time, which is now called the Office of Special Affairs. It's their sort of intelligence bureau. Um, they're still there. But it seemed as if on the surface that they had gotten rid of the vast majority of people that knew L. Ron Hubbard, that were associated with L. Ron Hubbard. And that was done, I think, for David Miscavige's own personal purposes, so he could ascend to power and, and not have any rivals. But it was also, from a promotional standpoint, it, 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 it appeared then publicly that they got rid of sort of all the bad apples. And, you know, from, I'm sure that they made that argument. I don't know. I mean, it's one of the best-kept secrets in, I think, of the IRS. They, they will not, not, not comment on it. No one will comment on this. And they will never, ever, ever tell you exactly what the, the discussion was in that meeting. Yeah. And why. It was, it was, but it was really a discussion between Miscavige and, and Rathbun and the head of the IRS. Yeah. It was not, um, you know, some kind of broad, like, inter you know, agency you know, decision. It was literally the decision of the head of the IRS. Yes. And, and these two, these two Scientology officials, it was a deal that, that they struck. And there were yeah. lots of IRS officials that were very upset with that deal. What could they do? In the interest of getting the facts right, I was really curious about this, because in that IRS chapter, you point to a high-ranking IRS official who says, they have a nasty habit of finding your unlisted telephone number and calling you at 2 a.m. Mm -hmm. There's the assistant commissioner who finds his garden hose turned off. Cats and dogs disappear. Um, I looked at the end notes, and I wasn't entirely clear where these details came from. Was this your own investigation? Yeah, they or? came from my own interviews. Okay, okay. And the best you could get was anonymous sources. Well, no, they're not going to yeah. make, they're not going to go on the record about this. This book has almost no anonymous yeah. sources, by the way. I mean, yeah. if you look, if you look at the book, I mean, there are very few anonymous sources. But this is one of those, you know, one of those situations where 
No one is going to go on the record about this. There's a lot, and for very good, incredible reasons. These are people that were intimidated for years by this organization, yeah. according to them, right? Yes. I'm a reporter. I don't know, you know, all I know is what they tell me. They were intimidated. They tell me stories of how they were intimidated for years and years and years. And they're not going to go on the record about it. They probably, I don't know whether they signed something where they can't go on the record. A lot of, a lot of people have signed agreements with the Church of Scientology that, where they're not supposed to speak publicly and, and therefore they will not, you know, have any other problems. But, um, you know. But for cats and dogs disappearing, were you able to There's a lot of, look, there's or? a, look, look, uh, Yes, through through um, I, I, every single interview in this book has been checked and cross-checked and triple-checked through whether or not this particular guy, whether I checked whether he whether you know his colleagues knew that he had cats and dogs disappearing, you know. Yes, and I also checked with other people who have experienced the exact same thing. I mean, these are well-known tactics. This is not something that was you know having those kinds of phone calls, having sort of these little dirty tricks like that, that kind of stuff you know, happened. I had a, a, a reporter that I know had his rabbit, I think, was either was either stolen or killed or something. He had a pet that was that was and he was absolutely convinced that it was the Church of Scientology and they were they were, you know, giving him a lot of problems. This was something that they were relatively, you know, infamous for doing. You know. You can't this is harassment. I mean are you gonna you know, I'm not I'm not making a gigantic uh, I, don't, I don't spend a tremendous amount of energy on, on all these scandals in the book. I mean, on harassment and whether or not they are harassers. I think that's an old, tired story, and yeah. we've heard it. Got it. In L. Ron Hubbard's handbook for preclears, Hubbard sent out instructions to offer a cure for homosexuality. Mm -hmm. In more recent years, the Church of Scientology has claimed that it is not homophobic, yet it has also supported Proposition 8. It was that support that led Paul Haggis, of course, to uh, to leave the church. Aside from John Campbell's brief mention of Hubbard's technology allegedly curing homosexuals, asthmatics, arthritics, and nymphomaniacs, and a footnote you have about homosexuality being declared a perversion, your book contains no mention of the church's inconsistent position on gay marriage and the like. I'm wondering why you played this down a little bit. To what degree did you investigate this? Has the church successfully managed to put its homophobic past behind it? Or? I never, I'm just not that particularly that interested in that stuff. I, I just, to be quite honest with you, it doesn't, it's not, you know, you, when you write a giant book like this, you have to choose what you're going to focus on, what stories are really going to represent the majority of the people that uh, are members of the Church of Scientology or former members of the Church of Scientology, what the Church of Scientology is about. It's not, it's not an organization about gay marriage or homo, or it's not a, it's not a, 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 an organization that is about being homophobic. It is an organization about control, and I focused on control. And there are people that joined Scientology to be cured of, of being gay. I definitely know them. I interviewed them. And, you know, they, there are people who have sued the Church of Scientology because it didn't cure them of being gay. But I just didn't, you know, you have to make a choice when you write a book what you're going to write about. And I just thought that's an actual very long discussion. And um, it just was not my particular area of interest. I'm much more interested in the experience of children who've grown up in the church. That, you know, that, that's, but, I mean, it's just, Well, on the other hand, something <laughs> like that does make the you Church of Scientology, choice, yeah. well, it, it's a choice, but it also allows them to be, you know, compared possibly with the Mormon church or, or, or what. You know, I think, I think the Mormon church is much different. In, in the Mormon church um, has overtly funded these kinds of things. I don't think, I don't actually know if the Church of Scientology is, is on some kind of campaign to um, 
I don't know whether they supported um, the anti-gay marriage, um, you know, propositions to, to I mean, and in, 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 certainly they would have ideologically, but to what, to what degree they went out there and really did this financially, I don't know. They're not usually so aligned with the Republican Party. They do have now some people that do align themselves with the Republicans, but they've been just as aligned with the Democrats. They, they, um, I know a lot of the big deal Scientologists who have been very much pro-Obama or pro, uh, very much anti-Bush, very much anti-the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So, um, you know, it, I just, I just don't, I don't know the degree to which they even think about homosexuality because. Um, it is so sinful within the church that they repress it immediately. Yeah. And so it's just something they don't talk about it. It's not, you know, you, you would admit to this maybe when you're doing your auditing or your counseling sessions. But, um, you know, their, their solution is for you to get married. And many, many, many people who are gay in Scientology do that. Scientology has a long history of purging many of its top officials into the relatively uh, recent your mm -hmm. book you report. Miskovich on the international base in 2004 shrieking, you guys have fucked with me for the last time. They play this game of musical chairs and those who don't land on the chair are offloaded from the base. Why is the church <laughs> so purge happy? What is the mentality or the reasoning behind this? I think that David Mis... Well, you know, I think L. Ron Hubbard did this to some degree as well, but Miscavige seems particularly um, big on the purging thing. And he just... Um, you know, they, it's an organization that does not tolerate dissent, mm -hmm. and it's become increasingly intolerant over the years, increasingly, increasingly intolerant, and um, the only way that you can maintain control is to get rid of anybody who opposes you, and so this is what happens. And Miscavige has a very erratic, you know, while I just said that he, in public, he can come across as rather, you know, centered and focused, I think behind the scenes he's, he's apparently highly erratic, mm -hmm. and, um, he he goes on sort of rampages where he wants to purge everybody. Then he'll take it back. Um, then he apparently has put people in, you know, isolation. Um, you know, people have told me stories about being locked in trailers. Yeah. You know, and um, but they've still been kept on the staff. They haven't been purged. So it depends on it depends on his mood. It depends on the time period of you depends know. Depends on the. Cosmos alignment. Yes, exactly. It's a full moon. You know, yeah. I mean, I really don't know. You know, he's it's it's, but he just seems to be somebody who um, needs to have a lot of control. And the way to do that is obviously to get rid of anybody who may question you or not like what you said or you know have a have a independent thought of their own about what you're what you're doing. What are the good things you could say about the scavenge? I think he's in a he's a great tactician. He's a great strategist. Um, he. He brilliantly maneuvered himself to power. This is a guy that did not even know L. Ron Hubbard all that well, but he figured out a way to um, become the most powerful guy in the organization and to and to cast himself as this as this Brigham Young character, you know. And he, you know, he is sort of the Brigham Young of the Church of Scientology, but he was not Brigham Young. You know, Brigham Young was actually a, a real, you know, ally of Joseph Smith. He knew him, right? I mean, Miscavige knew L. Ron Hubbard in a very limited way. He was a young kid. Um, he, he did work with him, but he was not um, one of the closest aides to him. There were many other people who were much, much closer to L. Ron Hubbard. But he maneuvered his way up to the very top, and he got rid of people along the way who were posing a challenge to him. And he was very good at intimidation and very good at 
um, at also befriending those people that he thought could help him. He could be a really fun guy, apparently really, like, really into sports. He likes to you know, pl you know, take people skiing. The people that worked with him that were on his good side really enjoyed being with him. So, um, you know, he certainly has his, his charm and his charisma, and I think he's, he's a, a brilliant tactician. He's a brilliant tactician. Narcodon, a drug treatment program mm -hmm. without methadone that sprang from Scientology, was implemented in prisons and drug treatment yeah. centers uh, around the United States. Kathy Lee Crosby, as you point out in the book, anti-drug crusader, now has been TV presenter. Uh, she appeared before <laughs> the House Select Committee on Narcotics Abuse and Control to speak against the reliance on chemical substances. Now, critics, as you point out, have insisted that the New York Rescue Workers Detoxification Project is a version of Narcanon by another name. Uh, I'm wondering if Narcanon was clearly aligned with Scientology roughly around 1973, why did Congress and prisons and drug treatment centers seriously consider and employ its use? Good question. No idea. <laughs> no idea. No idea. I mean, you know, it's this is this is Scientology's brilliance. They have um, they come up with with plans that um, that seem, you know incredibly innocuous. I mean, they, first of all, a lot of the people that work for some of these Narcanon clinics, they're not necessarily Scientologists. Yeah. Um, some of them are doctors, holistically minded doctors or nurses or, you know, they don't, I've met people that work for Narcanon um, organizations, clinics and whatnot that are not Scientologists. And um, they can persuasively say that, you know, we're secular. I mean, the church has a, a secular program, right? It has a management program, management technology, as it calls it, um, a set of management principles. They have the social betterment programs, Narcanon, their education uh, curricula. This is all, quote unquote, secular. Yeah. And it will be rewritten. Even the even the even the the basic principles of um, of Scientology. Um, are used in, in schools that employ Scientology ideas, but they'll, they'll be recast as secular, they'll be renamed. And you know, kids will be given books that will have very much of the same stuff that a Scientology book, that a, that a book that would be considered Scientology doctrine would have, but in, in a, you know, it'll be called the, the, the child's ethics book and it's gonna have pictures in it and it's going to teach them you know, sort of the basic values. And it's not gonna look religious you know, or Scientology associated, but it, it is. And it's, you know, certainly has been presented to um, legislators and has, you know, been accepted or fooled them or whatever. And, you know, actually very recently, uh, Nancy Cartwright, who's the voice of Bart Simpson, yeah. who's a big deal Scientologist, she has Got in a, trouble for Fox for leaving those voicemails, right, too. Right, yeah. for robocalling, yeah. right. So she has a program um, based in California that... Um, uses a, a set of moral principles called the way to happiness that L. Ron Hubbard wrote. And um, she has tried to introduce this program into public schools and most recently it was in, in the state of Illinois. And the Illinois legislator considered it and then you know, ultimately when they realized that it was connected to Scientology, they, they dropped it. But it looked innocuous. And that's why, yes. you know, that's why. They, they, there are lots of programs that are, that, you know, get funding that are not, don't, don't work all that well. I mean, you, we could argue that drug rehab itself, 28-day rehab, does not work all that yeah. well. How, you know, I mean, Scientology will have a whole bunch of, of statistics that, you know, it really depends whether people in, in power check those statistics.
Yeah. They're very good at their presentation. Their presentation is wonderful. Was it a matter so, of looking innocuous, or did it, in fact, have efficacious results to some degree? Um, I, you know, the thing with Scientology is, uh, I, I don't really know because, you know, I didn't, again, Narconon is, is, is a, it, it, you know, is its own subject. It's a huge subject, actually. Yeah. Um, and my book does not focus heavily on Narconon, but um, I think that, that a lot of the... Um, the basic core introductory ideas that Scientology will, will promote. Communication, for example, um, personal responsibility. You know, th this stuff is obvious, it's obvious, and it, and it certainly does work. It works, on if you, it works on you if you go to therapy, it works on you if you go to a self-help program, it works on you if you do Scientology. What doesn't work is when you get sort of drawn into the much more complicated, group-oriented, um, I, you know, I, in certain ways, maybe more spiritually oriented, but certainly more group-oriented activities. That's that's the where where things change in Scientology and become um, much more controlling. What happens with Narconon is some people become Scientologists. Some people take what they got from Narconon and it's helped them. My, from my understanding. A lot of people have not been helped by Narcanon. I've had really bad experiences with Narcanon um, all over the world, but you know that's that's its own that's its own thing. Another another yeah long conversation. Let's discuss the case of Lisa McPherson. She was forced to work, not allowed to see doctors, according to the state medical examiner. Initially, died of a negligent homicide. Dr. Joan Wood remarked, this is the most severe case of dehydration I've ever seen. The Church of Scientology, they hire two forensic investigators, including Dr. Michael Baden, who worked on the O.J. Simpson defense team, to dispute Wood's findings. Wood was then forced to eat crow, quite literally, more specifically state attorney Douglas Crow. Uh, crow said that in light of these new reports, Wood's actions had muddled the facts. Uh, the conclusion shifted from undetermined to accident. So I'm curious, who is more at fault here, Dr. Wood for letting 6,000 pages of contravening evidence force her to amend the death certificate, the church for using its financial resources to hire two of the best forensic investigators in the country? Are the underlying facts subject to financial fungibility? I mean, are both parties at fault? What's the deal here? I don't know. What do you think? You read the book. I think, uh, well, why would we discuss the underlying facts when there is a conclusion? That's really the, 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 the big question here. I mean, Dr. Joan Wood, the story of the Lisa McPherson case is the, um, the Florida, the, the Clearwater area uh, law enforcement community um, spends a tremendous amount of time and energy trying to uh, conclusively prove that the Church of Scientology had been negligent and that Lisa McPherson had indeed died because of something that had happened while she was under the church's care that had not that was a causal factor. Dr. Wood immediately made a de determination that that indeed had happened and was then deluged with paperwork over a five year or excuse me over a two year period but yeah. she had something like five or six thousand pages of, yeah. of documentation. She was over you know we're talking about this is not a backwater but this is you know this is Clearwater, St. Petersburg, Florida. This is not New York City. Yeah. You know, and this is a small corner from a smallish, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a Pinellas County, Florida. It's not huge. And she's now, imagine, she's now receiving, um, 
you know, the opinions and the uh, testimony and the findings of the top forensic experts in the world, some of them in the world. So, I mean, how would you feel? I think it's a little overwhelming, and yeah. I think at a certain point, this is, again, this is, the, this, is, this is the way that, you know, Scientology has done things, where they just, they overwhelm. Yeah. You know? It's certainly not a fair fight, but on the other hand, can we say Dr. Wood was understandably too emotionally impetuous in her response to this? I don't know. I mean, I'm not, the, I'm not putting Dr. Wood on trial, and I'm not here to judge. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a reporter. I'm, this is a really objective book. It's yeah. not subjective. And, um, you know, I'm just telling you that what happened. You guys can make up your own minds what you think about this whole story once you read the book. That's my final take on it. I think Dr. Wood, I think the Lisa McPherson story is a tragic story, and I think that... Um, one of the biggest problems is that, you know, <clears throat> that you're not focusing on is that the, 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 the level of control that the church exerts on its staff inhibited them from and really prohibited them from um, doing what many of them seem to have thought would have been the moral and right course, which was to call a doctor, which was to take her to a hospital, which is, you know, to take care of her when she clearly was taking a turn for the worse. But their minds were so controlled by this doctrine and by the organization they were working for and by the rules that they, they could not. And, um, it, you know, in a certain way you have like that sort of Nazi thing, like I was just following orders. I mean, it's, that's, that's exactly what they were telling police investigators. So who's at fault? You know, Dr. Wood is not at fault. I mean, the, who's at fault for the death of Lisa McPherson and who's at fault for, it, it's largely at fault with with the people within the Church of Scientology themselves who could not, for reasons that have to do with the structure of the organization, step out on their own, do the right thing, make sure this woman survived, you know, make sure this woman got the care that she deserved, and, you know, as a, as a result, she, she died. And then, you know, the, how the Church of Scientology then handles that situation legally. You're, you know, you're trying to get me to, 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 to say something uh, to indict the Church of Scientology for something illegal. And I'm not going to do that because I don't, I am just, you know, I'm a reporter. I am not somebody who is a lawyer or who is involved intimately in that case, nor do I have the authority to judge whether something is legal or not legal in, in, a, in that, at that level. What I can tell you is that, you know, clearly people within the Clearwater law enforcement community felt deluged, intimidated, overwhelmed, and they, they did not want to take the Church of Scientology on. Um, you know, they had a long history with the Church of Scientology in Florida, and I think they were very much, as I noted in the book, they were looking for a way to get out of this case. Yeah. They found it, and they got out of this case. And they're not pursuing it even now, having um, Marty Rathbun got, you know, gone on the record saying that he destroyed evidence, which is a criminal act, by the way, folks. Yeah. You know, that's a criminal act. And, you know, I don't, I mean, that's, those are the questions that you should be raising, not what happened 15 years ago. What about what's happened right now, just yeah. last year? Got it. Let's move on to Stephen Castle. One such RTC staffer was unable to see his wife, Tanya, and they were too exhausted to have sex, as he said. <laughs> By voicing this concern, he was given various rundowns. He was forced off the international base. Uh, Tanya was pressured to divorce him. Eventually, Stephen Castle was given a 30-page document where he had to promise never to sue or denounce the church to the press. He was given a check for $25,000 as well. Doesn't it make more financial sense to try to keep happy couples together so that they can actually support 
this system and give more money? Like, you know, it would make sense to me that, well, if you keep the couple together, you've got some people who are going to be contributing. No, to they're the not. Election. They're not contributing. Well, I mean, you keep a couple together. These are people that work for the organization. They make nothing. They're not paid very much. And they're not contributing anything financially. And, you know, there are lots of young people that go to work for the Church of Scientology. They join this organization called the Sea Organization. And they, you know, they can uh, easily be, I think the, the perception is they can easily be replaced. They're drones, you know. Now, Tanya was the secretary to Miscavige. She was very much valued. And she was, they did everything they could to hang on to her. For whatever reason it was, Miscavige did not like Stefan. Stefan is a... Uh, an outspoken, very headstrong. Um, he was a young guy. Um, he was, I, you know, he had certain qualities that maybe, maybe even reminded Miscavige of himself. I really don't know, but he certainly has this. Um, he's a very assertive, um, forthright uh, guy, very intelligent, and you know, he's a guy that doesn't back down. And you know, that, for whatever reason, I mean, Miscavige does not seem to be a person who, who tolerates that kind of behavior and, uh, you know, wanted to get rid of him. One last question. We were talking earlier about how the church is having greater difficulty in the Internet age attracting new members because now people can just go online and see what the Church of Scientology is all about. Uh, you mentioned at the end of the book that Farrakhan, he was the recipient of a, of a Scientology Friends of Mankind Award in 2006. Is this kind of strategic alliance with other religions and other organizations one of their main strategies with which to expand these days? I think it is. I think, they are, I think that is what they're doing. I don't know how well it's going to work because, um, you know, expanding into... They have, they've had a big push in the African-American community. And through, especially through Isaac Hayes, the late Isaac Hayes, um, he, was, he did a lot to promote... Uh, Scientology through a, through a, a literacy program that he ran, and they've been very active in the African American community. To what degree they have a huge African American following? I mean, this is a very white organization, very white, very straight white organization. Okay, but um, they are banking, it seems to me, on um, outreach into communities that are not as plugged in, literally, to uh, the conversation about them, and you know the the the, the African American community, and, and not we're not talking about the middle class African American community. You know, we're talking about the poor African American communities where the Nation of Islam is very very you know successful. Um, communities where they need literacy programs and they need this kind of stuff. They're not as plugged into the conversation. Same thing with with base poor communities, poor white communities, yeah. you know, prisons, for example, you know, they go into prisons and, and that's another community that is kind of a captive audience, literally a captive audience for them, but they're not going to be as plugged into what's been said about them on the internet. They're not going to be able to go on the internet and do all their research. They're not, you know, they won't have watched the TV programs. They won't have seen all of that. They won't have read my book. They won't have done any of that yeah. stuff. Um, so uh, they won't have read my book yet anyway. Um, so, so that's so it is a strategy. I don't so I don't know to what degree it will work because what they need, you know, they this, the Church of Scientology was built on the backs of people like myself or people like you, you know, people that were, you know, young, smart, educated, uh, or or coming from educated families, coming from people, you know, people of some kind of means, who are willing to and who are intellectually, you know, curious enough to stick with something like this, and they were, you know, who were willing to put in their money. 
and who are ambitious and able to actually make a huge amount of money. Some of these people became incredibly wealthy yeah. and they've given that money right back to the church. There are lots of very successful business people that have done, that do Scientology and um, have been in Scientology forever. And that's where the church's money comes from. And they do not, the money actually does not come from the celebrities as much as it comes from people like accountants or doctors, lawyers, chiropractors, dentists, uh, veterinarians, people that are, you know, can make a tremendous amount of money and have it to, and, and have the freedom to give them a million dollars here and there and that kind of thing. So, you know, I, I don't know whether that's going to, how they're going to translate that um, into the black community or into any, any lower income community. Um, and they, you know, also they've done, they've, just to continue that point, I mean, they've done, they've reached out internationally to, to often to the developing world. Yeah. Same, it's the same idea. It's like, what, what, you know, so how's that going to sell? I mean, it might sell to some degree, but how's it actually going to sell? Because this is about selling. This is not about, you know. So it's interesting because one of the, one of the biggest problems with Scientology is that it is about selling. It's not actually free. And were it free... And were it free intellectually as well as free literally, it could probably evolve into something that was, um, you know, a, a more a more viable, long-lasting faith, for lack of a better word. But more be ethical faith? No, more long-lasting. Well, I mean, you know, whether it's more, they have no, they have their own ethics. They have a very, very strong ethical code. Whether we agree with the ethical code is something else, but yeah. they agree with their ethical code. So. You know, they have their own ethics. But it's like, you know, one of the biggest things with even the Mormons, you know, the Mormons, um, the, you know, every major church, every major religion, whether it's Judaism or Christianity or Islam or, or they, you know, even Buddhism, I mean, they, they discuss all these, all these major faiths of the world. They have people that debate the tenets. They discuss them. They have offshoots. They have, um, I mean, look at, look at the, you know, Protestantism you have. You had Martin Luther, and Martin Luther begat, in certain ways, the Church of England, which, you know, and then you have many other Protestant faiths, right? Scientology is nothing like that. They have one independent movement now. And that's actually very promising if you want to remain doing Scientology, because they're saying, look, we're not going to charge you very much. We're discussing, you know, we're discussing L. Ron Hubbard. We're discussing the values of various things. And maybe this will evolve to a situation where, um, where it will become a more flexible organization. And if it does, then it can survive. It, if it remains in this like very rigid, rigid, locked in, uh, hierarchical mindset, where it's pu it has a very punishing, punitive um, sort of guidance at this point. I don't think, right now people seem to be leaving it, leaving it and losing, losing interest in it. It's not worth it for them. Literally not worth it. They have to invest in it and it's not, worth it where they're not getting enough of a return yeah so or offshoots perhaps as well yeah well as you, as you had mentioned before yeah. well i mean if they have if they could do if they have offshoots that would be great that's not allowed within yeah. the church so the people that have done this form this independent movement are being persecuted yes. this happened 20 years ago as well there was another independent movement and those people were literally the guy that started that was sued out of business he he you know was absolutely shut down i don't know whether they're going to be successful doing that with this current group but, um, and they probably will not be as successful because the internet makes it, it's almost impossible to shut, shut down free thought, yeah. you know? But that's what Scientology is trying to do. They're trying to, they've tried to shut down free thought. Um, that's, what, that's what the organization does as a whole. It shuts down the members, you know, independent thought 
it forms their minds around its own ideology and it does not allow you to question any question this ideology and and unless you question you you know no no viable religion that's lasted has existed without you know adaptation you know without questioning without debate you know these are the the fundamentals of our you know of western religions per, you know particularly and so they they don't allow that, so it, it actually is, is uh, it doesn't speak well for the future if they, if they continue along that path. That's what I think. Let's close this conversation on the promise of opening up independent thought. Janet, thanks very much. It was a pleasure to chat with you. Take nice to meet you. Thanks. Yes, but as a known scientist, it would be surprising if a girl blinded me with something.